This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student in history, and I study the history of disease. I'm Maya, and I work in public health in developing areas. Cheers. Cheers. What are you drinking? The idea was that we had a little bit of Prosecco left from our um, house Christmas dinner. Mm-hmm. So I was going to make a sort of spritzer with um, simple syrup, soda water, mm-hmm. mint, whatever citrus fruit I had lying around. It turns out I only had like a splash of Prosecco left. So it's uh, soda water and simple syrup <laughs> with a splash of Prosecco mm-hmm. and some mint and a little bit of lime. I mean, it sounds good. Yeah. Is that coffee I see? I'm having the My Mother special, which is very Russian. It is oversteeped black tea with a sugar cube and lime juice. Amazing. I love that. My mom's number one top beverage. As you may have guessed, I am home for the holidays. Uh, Angel's not. <laughs> nope. Christmas chaos every year. Uh, but we thought we'd still do our holiday special, which is... <laughs> Lyme disease. Yeah, I mean, it's a festive one. (laughs) I was going to try and make a connection to winter or holiday spirit, but it is actually the... (laughs) There's just... it's There's not a connection at all. So... I mean, uh, deer, reindeer. Oh, that's quite good. Reindeer are diseased with Lyme disease. (laughs) It definitely... Changes the perception of Santa Claus and his sleigh a little bit. It does. Okay, well, we'll get into the explanation of why that is. So today, we're going back to our roots. We are doing a vector-borne disease. As Angel said when we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do next, Lyme disease really speaks to me. So I mean, I don't remember saying that, and I am not sure I actually feel that way. But I believe strong. I think I have evidence. Very random. I'm gonna have to look and see if I have text evidence, and if I do, I'm gonna make an Instagram post about it. <laughs> Call me out, why don't you? Okay, so those of you who are based in North America, in particular, might be more familiar with the name Lyme disease. Uh, it's becoming much more of a big deal around here, so we thought we would break it down. As per usual, I'm going to do a quick overview of what it is, where it comes from. So Lyme, spelled L-Y-M-E, is actually just named after the town of Lyme, Connecticut, uh, which is a dubious claim to fame. It's not very exciting. I really wanted to find some like interesting facts about like the town or something to spice it up. But all I could find was that it was founded in 1667. It's like original colonial America colony vibes. About 2,000 people live there, and that was it. <laughs> kind of a dead end. <laughs> so I had to go deeper. Uh, you might be asking yourself, I know you're not, no one is, but what is uh, the town of Lyme, Connecticut named after? I'll tell you. It's named after Lyme Regis, which is a town in Dorset, England. I've actually been there. Ah, was it delightful? Yeah. It was a delight. The entire town is like built on a hill and it's by the sea and you're going to talk about the Jane Austen thing, which is actually the reason we went. Anyway, I'm a nerd. Yes, continue. (laughs) And I mean, I knew this would appeal to you. So uh, Lyme, because it's on the water, has a harbor wall and that wall is called the Cobb, C-O-B-B. The Cobb is featured in quite a few books, most notably, at least to us, Jane Austen's Persuasion. So now we're getting somewhere. Love the book. It's my favorite Jane Austen. Would highly recommend. Yeah, it's my favorite. I read it over and over again. 
So now we're getting some interesting facts about <laughs> Lyme. The town of Lyme Regis itself is in fact named after an abbey originally built on that site on the shores of the river Lyme, spelled L-Y-M. That abbey had salt boiling rites. Not entirely sure what that means, but I would count that as the origins of the name of Lyme disease. You are all very welcome for this, and you're also welcome for the fact that I found a quote from a book written in 1066 describing the attributes of the town of Lyme, and I chose not to read it out loud for you. <laughs> I'm really proud of you. Thank you. Um, okay. Such restraint. So, onto the good stuff, or the relevant stuff. So, Lyme disease, vector-borne disease. If you remember, if you're an OG listener, uh, vector-borne disease means a disease that is spread by a vector. The vector being a living organism that can transmit an infection between humans or between humans and animals. The disease itself is still a virus or a bacteria. It's just not like spread via air or droplets. It's spread via this vector. We talked about this certainly during the plague episode because we discussed how people thought that the bacteria for plague was being spread by rats, but it was actually fleas living on rats. Okay, back to Lyme. Too many segues. Lyme disease is caused primarily by a bacteria called Borrelia burgdorferi, which just makes me think of Bergdorf's department store. And the bacteria in this instance is carried around by everybody's least favorite parasitic arachnid, the tick. Parasitic arachnid. I know, isn't that horrible? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> that is awful. It's a terrible combination of words. That also, by the way, makes it a zoonotic disease, which is one of our faves. Quick note on ticks. They're in the genus, class, family, order, whatever, uh, Arachnida parasitica. <laughs> um, so Arachnida obviously is spiders, um, but there's a smaller subgroup that are parasites. So that means they feed on a host's blood. Some ticks only have one host. They stay on it for their entire lives, but other ticks go up to two or three hosts. That means... That if a host holds or is a reservoir for Lyme disease bacteria and the tick is on it and then it goes to another host like a person, the person will get the disease. Fun fact, not at all fun, Lyme is not spread any other way. It is not spread person to person. It's not spread by food or anything else that we're aware of. Uh, just ticks. And ticks are also responsible for a bunch of other diseases the world over. This includes typhus, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, Colorado tick fever, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, relapsing fever, <laughs> babesiosis, and many more. What is that? I have no idea, but that just is basically a list of like really gross diseases that we could cover on this show if we wanted to. In conclusion, I hate ticks, and I am actually genuinely afraid of them they're really up there in terms of like least favorite animals i mean they're so sneaky as well like they're really hard to find and if you're in an area where you're getting bitten a lot and if you're like me insects love mm -hmm. you and it's really difficult to tell the difference between an insect bite and and something that could be a tick yep. Unless it's still attached. Yeah, and they they can be really, really, really tiny. So you have to be very thorough about checking your body. 
Yeah, and we'll talk about their bites, in fact, in just a moment. So yeah, Lyme is most common in Western Europe and North America. It's significantly rarer in Asia and Africa, if at all. There are ticks and tick-borne diseases there, just not this specific bacteria. In North America, the specific tick, and I actually think this is true of Western Europe as well, the specific tick to look out for is the black-legged tick. Um, Very few other ticks actually transmit Lyme. In the U.S., the tick has to be attached to your body for 36 hours or so in order to transmit the Lyme disease bacteria. But interestingly enough, in Europe, there's a much shorter window. So the tick could be attached to you for less time and you would still be at risk for Lyme disease. Isn't that weird? Oof. Okay. That's really odd. I did not dive deeper into why that might be. I just like, what? Cool. So let's say, like us, we are highly susceptible to all insects and you get bitten by a tick. First off, Ticks are very hard to remove. Do not just like grab it and squish it because that spreads the bacteria around more and you have like an open wound. Instead, what you want to do is you want to get little tweezers. You want to get right down to their head and sort of try and pop it out whole. In many places, if you save that tick, you can actually send it off to a local laboratory through your public health system and get it tested to know if you should be worried and if you should medicate or anything like that. If you're just over it and that's not an option, flush it. Do not toss them in the wastebasket because much like cockroaches, they can be quite challenging to kill, especially if you're trying not to squish it and get bacteria everywhere. So let's say you get bitten by a tick, it latches onto you and you get infected. How would you be able to tell that you have Lyme disease? So as we were talking about with the bites, a large amount of cases start with this rash at the bite point that looks a bit like a bullseye. That's not always true, but it is like relatively common. That bullseye is called erythema migrans. And then from there, it pretty much just gets more confusing. So for a lot of people, a few days after you've got the bite and the rash, you get cold-like symptoms, so you would get a headache, fever, chills, just not the stiffly bits. Um, but that's only sometimes true. It could progress without you having had any of these symptoms or any bite mark or any rash. In a matter of days or weeks, it spreads through the bloodstream. And this is where it gets kind of crazy. So you could have seen none of those initial early symptoms and still be developing new symptoms over huge amounts of times. And here's an incomplete list of symptoms you could develop. Muscle pain, neurological problems, an intolerance to bright lights, tinnitus, vertigo, loss of vision, facial palsy, double vision, pain or weakness in your nerves, impaired movement and brain function, heart palpitations, arthritis, insomnia, fibromyalgia. Apparently, they're investigating a bunch of associations with psychiatric conditions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So that's fun. And that, like the rest of these things, are basically all things that can be mixed up as direct symptoms or caused by very specific other diseases, right? So if you have arthritis, more than likely your medical professional is going to be like, cool, you have arthritis. Not this is a clear symptom of Lyme disease because it's not. Especially since it's so easy to miss a tick bite, This, all these things together make it very hard to diagnose because you could have any or none of these things or a combination. I mean, in addition to having to advocate for yourself at the doctor's office and 
can often be challenging to be taken seriously when you have like a loose kind of assembly of symptoms that could or could not be Lyme disease or something like it. Yeah, and you might not even know. So you would think that the best thing to do would be to get tested, right? So typically, if you're not sure, um, if it's early enough, like if you've really just been bitten, a doctor will do sort of this ad hoc diagnosis. Like, do you have the most common side effects like this bullseye or the chills or whatever? And at the same time, taking into account how frequently you might be exposed to ticks. There are tests for it, which they'll do sort of if it's a few months out. But these bacteria that cause Lyme disease are hard to spot even in a lab setting. So instead what they do is the tests look for the antibodies that fight off the bacteria. So a positive test result means that you have antibodies, not that you have the bacteria. So that means that it's not 100% certain that you actually have Lyme disease. Up to 20% of the population already has Lyme antibodies without having Lyme disease. So like, it's not really that certain. That's like, that's crazy though, because like I was out of curiosity searching out like Lyme disease worldwide, trying to get a sense of like where it was and how everybody was doing. And it's like one in seven people worldwide. Yeah, I found either that Either have or, or have had. That's insane. That's a large number. It's really large. Considering. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. There's nearly a 30% misdiagnosis of the rash. So really frequently a health professional might say like, oh, that looks like poison ivy or something and send you on your way. And there is an 83% misdiagnosis of other manifestations. So like somebody saying, oh, you just have arthritis and sending you on your way. It's often called the great imitator for that exact reason. Like syphilis (laughs) round two. (laughs) We need new names. For the record, however, not all bad. You can generally treat and cure Lyme. The key is just to catch it as early as possible. The best rule of thumb is to get to it early. Uh, You can have something called PTLDS, which is post-treatment Lyme disease, which makes you really sleepy, in pain, and unable to concentrate for months and months on end. (laughs) So do you think it could be Lyme disease rather than long COVID? (laughs) That would be that would be bad. I am waiting for the moment where we do one of these diseases and all of a sudden one of us is like, oh, (gasps) (laughs) if it does go untreated, you can have these massive, terrible side effects from having Lyme, you know, along the list of the ones that I mentioned earlier, but most specifically around nerve damage, memory loss, heart inflammation, immune system decline, I would say psychological effects, too. So you can see that there's obviously a really big problem with how hard it is to diagnose it properly. Let's just super quick before I stop, talk about prevention. So the best way to prevent Lyme disease is to not get bitten by ticks. You're welcome, everyone. That's the end of the podcast. Thank you for listening. (laughs) Good luck. So there isn't a vaccine for it. The best thing to do is if you're going to be in high tick areas like long grasses, rural spaces, wear long shirts, tuck your pants into your socks. Uh, I know a lot of people actually wrap duct tape backwards around their ankles because then the ticks just stick to the tape and they can't get through. Um, You can also have treated fabrics and materials. In North America, high tick season is between April and September, so the summer months. If you have animals like dogs that you're walking and letting them off leash and into the grasses, please tick treat them. So many ticks are carried into homes on your pets. And in fact, the majority of bites that cause Lyme disease actually happen 
in homes, not outside. So you can prevent ticks on your clothing with chemicals like permethrin or DEET (laughs) or even oil of lemon eucalyptus. If you do get bitten, you can take antibiotics as long as it's within the first first 36 to 48 hours after being bitten. Um, And this is kind of like a preventative measure. And it really does improve your chances of preventing the spread of the disease. I will say that my mother is a tick magnet and she just seems to to draw them to her. And now they just, my parents just carry antibiotics around all summer because the chances of her being bitten is so high. Poor mama. Anyway, I really hate Lyme disease and I really, really hate ticks. I like really don't yeah. like them. I mean... You're in a very bad area for that. Yeah, huge like problem. Upstate here. New York, just lots of wooded places and like deer everywhere. Yep. And I will speak more to that when I return. But for now, I'm going to hand it over to you. <laughs> Thank you. This was kind of a tricky one for the history section. <laughs> so I will keep it short and sweet. I did not have a lot of um, source material for today. Uh, both for time management reasons and because the disease itself only jumped into humans in like the 1970s. So (laughs) here we are. Thank you and apologies. The late modern period. The late, late modern (laughs) period. The Cold War, if you will. However, I will say that it's actually a great uh, case study for environmental historians who might be looking to demonstrate how nature can influence humans and vice versa Um, and it's something that hasn't really been investigated too too much yet so if you're looking out for a phd project this could be a good one for you is someone keeping a list of all our good phd project ideas i mean i just hope that if someone's listening to this and they're interested in history and they're maybe thinking about like going back for another degree they'll be like wow that really speaks to me (laughs) and just do a google search and see what i mean like angel feel that Lyme disease speaks to you. Yeah, exactly. So in 2017, the Yale School of Public Health published results of a 30-year study on Lyme disease, and they found that Lyme disease had actually been endemic in the forests of North America for at least 60,000 years. That's so many years. Yeah, so it was surviving in deer populations, but not reaching epidemic levels until the 20th century and not reaching humans in any significant way until the 20th century. And the reason for that is like various ecological and environmental changes. So a few of the factors driving this are that population control of wolves and strict hunting restrictions drove um, an explosion in deer populations and allowed deer ticks to invade New England and the Midwest. There's another phenomenon called suburbanization. So uh, land which had been deforested for agricultural use was actually then reforested. By 1980, the northeastern U.S. had about four times more forests than than in the century before. And these new forests were uh, more compact and they were also devoid of natural predators. So that was driving that that explosion in the population of deer, as Maya can probably tell you by looking out her window. I shoveled away so many deer tracks this morning. I, I remember when I came to visit you for for American Thanksgiving one year. I think, did we have to fight deer for something? Like, we were quite worried putting something outside that the deer were going to come and eat it. Well, it, part of it was we were driving at nighttime and I was like, you'd best 
let me drive the rest of the way home because you develop like a, a sixth sense for seeing deer just off the side of the road. Yeah. That's fair. And they do. They eat everything. So in this process of suburbanization, there's the deforestation, there's the reforestation, and then there's also an increase in populations of other animals that are not deer. For example, uh, mice and robins, which could host ticks and spread the bacterium and generally expand the habitat of ticks. And the land adjacent to these woodlands was then developed for residential use, aka the suburbs. People move from city to suburb, they plant gardens, which attracts deer onto their property, and uh, these people also bring pets, which attract ticks into their homes. And I would call that a spicy cocktail of conditions for bringing (laughs) ticks closer and closer to humans. So I actually had a, this is my funny but grim anecdote about deer. I don't know why this amused me so much because it is about like measuring the impact of of deer on humans by like the rate at which they're hit by vehicles. So according to a recent US survey, and now I'm going to quote, deer are struck by cars, trucks, and motorcycles more than a million times a year with accidents killing more than 100 people annually. The human toll makes deer deadlier than sharks, alligators, bears, and rattlesnakes combined. And there was another another weird thing that they included in that section, and it was that according to the Federal Aviation Administration, at airports, deer have been struck by more than 500 aircraft over the last decade, including fighter jets and Boeing 737s, which like... That's not that's not funny. That's that's just baffling. How what? do they get on the tarmac? I don't understand. And a subsequent question, how are there so many of them when they have such limited survival instincts? Like I don't know. those planes are so know. loud. Run away. <laughs> yeah, like you know something's coming. And yeah, I think I I was kind of bringing this up as an example of a creative use of sources, which is quite important when you're doing something like environmental history, especially if you're if you're trying to find a way to get the audience on your side in a project where you're filling a gap in the literature, aka it hasn't been done before. So you need to kind of quantify and and measure the impact of natural phenomena, in this case an animal species on humans to, mm-hmm. to help you set the context for something like Lyme disease. That's my aside. And then the final factor that pushed Lyme disease into human populations and made it epidemic was actually climate change. So warmer winters allow ticks to survive about 28 miles further north each year, which is not great. Um, And it accelerates the tick's life cycle. So my conclusion from all of these factors is that Lyme disease as we know it in humans was pretty much exclusively driven by human interventions in the natural world. Hey, we continue to mess it up for ourselves. So the first known outbreak in humans began in Lyme, Connecticut, (laughs) as Maya mentioned before, in 1975. There was a cluster of children and adults who began experiencing, quote, uncommon arthritic symptoms. In 1977, so two years later, the first cases of Lyme disease were described, and uh, the black-legged tick, uh, and its proper name is Ixodes scapularis, was linked to the transmission of disease. Then in 1982, the bacterium was discovered, and a brochure was developed by the Arthritis Foundation. In 1984, serological testing became widely available in Connecticut, and it became a reportable disease in 1987. 
really recent. Really recent, yeah. It starts to get traction in the media and there's some national attention around Lyme disease. The first Lyme disease vaccine becomes available in 1997, but it's actually withdrawn by the manufacturer in 2001. And I was wondering if you came across anything about that because I couldn't find a reason. That's weird. I'll look into it. So something I found quite interesting about the uh, 1975 and and resulting um, actions is the speed at which the thing is identified and the sheer momentum around it. I mean, we, we've covered some ongoing epidemics and pandemics on the show, but I can't think of anything comparable. Like 10 years for testing to be widely available and quick disease surveillance, and I didn't mention it, but they do actually get federal funding for research into Lyme disease within 10 years as well which I don't think I've seen that in the diseases that we've covered. No, it's crazy. I agree. That's a good point. Oh, it's really interesting. So yeah, that's pretty much all I have for you today. I will jump in if anything else of note comes up in your section. <laughs> Thank you. I basically looked at what we had about Lyme disease and I felt like there were two directions to take it in. One was misdiagnosis. And basically talking about how it's so hard to diagnose and basically how terrible that can be for people. And that felt like a real bummer, (laughs) to be honest. It's just a lot of stories of people's lives being ruined. And then the other direction was uh, how climate change and the climate crisis affects human health and disease. (laughs) I too went with the latter. (laughs) Both things very sad. Yeah. So I will talk a bit about, like, I think we we identified very similar themes, which is very classic of us. So I'll go over them. Um, I did take, as you mentioned, like, my area has so many deer and so many ticks. So I did take a very local tip to it, which I thought was kind of fun because I'm here right now. So let's get to it. As you said, huge explosion of Lyme disease. Where are we now? Well, as I mentioned, we kind of just don't know because it's so hard to diagnose and test for. It's very likely uh, that we are actually under-reporting Lyme disease because people so often misdiagnose it as something else. That being said, I read that same systematic review as you that showed that one in seven or 14% of all people globally have or had had Lyme disease. Interestingly enough, in Western Europe was where that was the highest percentage, so 20% of all people studied carried Lyme antibodies. It's possible that that's just because there's less people, though. Um, It is the most common vector-borne disease in the United States. Our current estimate by the CDC is that nearly half a million Americans are getting diagnosed and treated for Lyme at the moment, but they actually point out that treatment numbers are probably higher than the number of infections because it's so easy to misdiagnose. So really, (laughs) the takeaway is that misdiagnosis could go either way, so we like extra, extra don't know how many people, so that's good. Uh, (laughs) There are certain areas of the U.S. where you are really at risk. One, of course, is here in upstate New York, my home and native land, and of course, Connecticut, where it first originated. Uh, And there is a truly terrifying CDC map that shows the change in cases from 2001 to 2020. And maybe we'll try and make like a little screen capture video or something like that to put on the Instagram because it just shows the spreading dots like crawling further northward and expanding how many cases. It's really off-putting. Creepy crawly infographic. Very much so. What I really wanted to talk about more is why we are experiencing that huge increase in Lyme disease and the huge increase in ticks every year. The answer being, 
humans and the climate crisis, as you so astutely mentioned. Another similarity between the plague and Lyme disease in this specific context is that much like the fleas rode around on the rats, the tick rides around on the deer. The more deer, the more ticks because they both feed and mate on them. So again, like you astutely pointed out, the more the deer population gets out of control, the more likely we are to have Lyme disease. In this little village of mine, we are super heavy in all of these things, deers, ticks, limes, all of it. We've got it all in spades. The biggest issue being the deer, um, because yes, we've killed all those natural predators. Yes, we've changed the ecosystem. They eat all of our plants. You can't grow anything in the garden without having like a huge, massive fence around it. People trade regularly in deer prevention measures. They're just generally menaces. Like you said, there's a ton of car accidents. I looked it up. The two counties surrounding my own are the top two for animal-related crashes in New York State. And on those roads as well. Like, they're so windy and yeah, dark. and Very country it, road yeah. through the hills and dales. I saw my life flash before <laughs> my eyes. <laughs> I also don't help because I tend to take them quite uh, confidently. Fast at breakneck speed, almost drag racing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We also, because of that amount of deer, we've actually changed in our village the rules around hunting. And we have a deer harvest program that allows the culling of deer within the village limits, which is typically not a thing because you don't want to shoot people by mistake. (laughs) Ideally. (laughs) Okay, so you mentioned uh, a stat of moving further north 28 miles a year, which is so insane that's so much that's fast it's so fast so basically with the climate crisis the warmer it gets the further north specific hosts can live so that includes not just deer but also birds and rodents and they also can live through more of the season so not just in further areas but also just like more time so those animals are reservoirs for lyme disease so the more of them that survive and then thrive with this new temperature and then roam and then get bitten by ticks, the more likely we are to get Lyme disease. And interestingly enough, the temperature changes also influence a tick's ability to survive, which is all a natural consequence of reducing our biodiversity, changes in land use, and climate change, like you said. Typically, in a normal tick lifestyle life cycle, a cold winter <laughs> tick lifestyle. <laughs> tick lifestyle. Just leech and leech. It's the tick agenda, I'm telling you. Um, So usually a cold winter freezes them up and only a few survive. But of course, as our winters get milder and milder, fewer of them die off and then they procreate and they make more nasty tick babies to bite us. Also, though, studies showed that the warmer it gets, the more active ticks get in seeking out hosts. So basically when it's hotter, even in the summer, they get more bold and more likely to seek out humans, which in ticks is called questing, which I kind of like. Like, I hate the vibe, <laughs> but I like that it's called questing. So what that means questing. is that um, if a tick is questing, it will climb a grass or tree or something, wait to ambush a potential host, latch onto it, feed, and then detach or to go on to the next host or to live its life, its little ticky life. 
And basically they're saying that the hotter it gets, the more active they are in their questing behaviors, the further they're willing to range, the bouncier they get jumping around from person to person. It's like a little arachnid Robin Hood and his merry men. <laughs> I feel like the Disney movie deserves a sequel. With ticks? It's a lost opportunity. Okay, so there's also evidence to show that ticks are also adapting over time and like getting more able to live in hotter climates. So they're actually also evolving to survive better with the climate crisis. And then, of course, the longer the summer, the nicer it's hot and beautiful and sunny out, uh, the more us human beings want to go outside to enjoy it. That's the most human sounding thing I've ever said. Us, us humans love to go outside. Us humans. Uh, so if you have a longer spring and a warmer fall and a longer summer, people are outside to be attacked by questing ticks. So in conclusion... The formula here is you have more hosts living with Lyme disease, more ticks that can survive better questing around, and more humans with their juicy, juicy legs going outside to where the ticks are questing. <laughs> That's the perfect recipe. I think Canada is also a great example of this change. Like we've, I mean, in my childhood, I truly do not remember a Lyme being this big of a deal. Like, it happened. I knew it existed when I reached my like early teens, but it was not like hectic. And now it's a huge deal. In Canada, I run into people all the time who had never thought about ticks a day in their life. So Canada, notoriously quite chilly. In 2009, there were only 144 cases of Lyme disease in Canada. In 2021, there were nearly 3,000, which is a huge jump. That is large. It's large. So risk areas are basically all along the southern border of the country because um, we're still still warming up a bit. So basically the areas surrounding Halifax, St. John, Ottawa, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Victoria, which are all the bits along the southern border with the U.S. As usual, it's all America's fault. Black-legged ticks are spreading to areas of the country where they just simply could not have survived before due to dramatically changing temperatures. And the similar issue is true in the Mid-Atlantic and New England areas of the United States. So places like Pennsylvania, Maine, New York, and Connecticut, where it was always endemic, are now experiencing a huge explosion of Lyme disease. I don't know. It's just like with that combined with the misdiagnosis, combined with how bad it can be and how we don't really have a good test. It's kind of just like sad and scary that we don't really have more capacity for vector control or testing or treatment, um, given how many people are going to be affected by this in coming years. And also, I don't know, it seems like maybe local public health units are not trained well enough to be able to identify it effectively. Mm -hmm. Like it just seems like our systems are not in order. I don't really know where to take that thought. Um, yeah, I mean, I also read about read a bit about like cross agency communication being a problem. Like maybe at, yeah. at one level of surveillance, you might recognize that this is a growing issue, but you might also struggle to like take that to the CDC and and make a big deal out of it. Yeah, because it is not our especially right now. It's not our most pressing concern, but actually, it is like very real and present and just around the corner basically like totally as soon as temperatures start to warm up like we're gonna have a serious problem yeah and that's been a big thing in recent years in the u.s and I, I suspect in canada as well of like how these units are coordinated and supported and how they because they're at a state level how they transmit data at the federal level is not necessarily the same and they have different requirements so there's a tons of issues there we i don't know i feel like 
at a higher level, it would be great to have a new vaccine because obviously demand's going to go up in certain areas. Uh, we could maybe do some vector control spraying that isn't like toxic. We could spread some awareness. We could teach people to diagnose and treat Lyme disease better. On a personal level, I guess wear bug spray and long pants. It is, I mean, the most obvious thing I think to say about this is that uh, it's a really tough lesson for all of us about how climate change can affect us in so many ways. And those ways are starting to sneak up on us all at once. So like we're an epicenter here, but I spent my childhood every day running around in long grass with like, my shorts and no worries and everything was great. Um, and now I'm hyper aware of tick issues. <laughs> and like how many more things like this are going to come out where, you know, we could have predicted it. Probably someone did. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't do anything yeah. about it. It just kind of smacks you in the face. And Lyme disease is not the only tick-borne disease we're going to have to worry about in the near future. So I guess, like, buy a bunch of DEET and worry about cancer later. I don't I don't know. Lemon eucalyptus oil. I mean, that's the thing, though. You can't really see it in isolation. Like, we have, we have kind of discussed it in isolation, but it's very difficult to get away from broader issues about about diseases that are that are emerging like it's very difficult to get that urgency going when there is not like an imminent threat that is urgent enough slash that it's too late to do anything about because unless you're like in the middle of it and it is actively threatening like public health infrastructure and impacting everyone in the day-to-day it's very difficult to get people hyped about it despite all of the lessons we've been learning over the past few years so true and what's crazy to me is that like i i mean thousands of people having long-lasting diverse health issues is a threat to the healthcare system but in North America, well, I would say globally, pretty much, with very few exceptions, we're obsessed with like secondary and tertiary level care. Like we're obsessed with having, um, you know, really good spaces for surgery and long-term care and, uh, you know, how to treat a broken arm or like a really severe case of something. And we are not good at prevention and primary we're like really terrible at it and it leads it's it's what's going to lead to if we ever deal with the actual covid part of the covid epidemic we're going to end up with these long term effects because we didn't set up a system that would care for the long term issues that emerge we're with Lyme I mean, disease. That's already happening. It is. It is. People sure. are suffering and the health system can't keep up. And the same will be true of yeah. Lyme disease. If we did better at prevention and primary identification, then you wouldn't have people who in over the next 5, 10, 20 years are going to have to be going to the hospital over and over and over again for an illness that can't they can't cure. Anyway, <laughs> I really feel that. Merry Christmas and happy Hanukkah. Yep. How about some hoorays? How about some hoorays? I have I have a few. I'm very happy to spend some time with my family. It is like snowy and wintry down here. My house is notoriously freezing. <laughs> um, and so we got in and it was the first night of Hanukkah and my mom handed Adrian one like little packet and he opened it up and it was just one slipper and they were like one present per night of Hanukkah. <laughs> That is so typical. <laughs> it's so funny. I'm really surprised it was your mom and not your dad that I'm did this. I'm sure they plotted it together. <laughs> he has two slippers now and he is loving life. So, good. Okay. What's your hooray? Uh, hoorays. Hoorays. Oh, speaking of questing. <laughs> speaking of questing, um, I 
in my infinite television binging um, of the past few months, <laughs> I recently started watching Once Upon a Time again. Wow. I know. All wow. of it is on Disney+, Plus, so I've started in on that. I haven't watched it since it was coming out, and I'm pretty sure I didn't progress beyond the first season. So it's interesting doing that again, and I'm realizing how many of the actors in there actually went on to be incredibly famous and successful. Yeah. How is it? I remember thinking it was kind of bad, but actually watching it now, it's excellent. Really? Because I remember thinking it. something yeah. similar. Yeah. I, I find it a lot more appealing now. It's kind of a slow burner. And I appreciate that you're not sure what exactly is going on. Like, is the little boy just delusional or is yeah. his theory about the curse real? It's really As odd. I recall, it just escalated so much over the course of the seasons. It just gets more and more convoluted. But yeah, yeah I'm, I'm liking this rabbit hole. It's kind of like Lovely. a low, low commitment, low effort questing kind of situation. How lovely for you. Other hooray is that my best friend got me a great gift for Christmas slash birthday of last year slash birthday of next year. <laughs> I Maya sent me a box full of uh, yellow themed things, including um, a poutine, instant poutine sauce, which it really just makes my life, and a book called Nuns Misbehaving, which I'm very much looking forward to reading on my trip. I am forward to you reading it also and hearing your reports mm -hmm. on the topic. Yeah, it's just like taking all of the scandalous stories from like 15th century convents in Italy and being like, wow, <laughs> these nuns were wild. I hope it's all just gay nuns. I really. <laughs> uh, well, apparently in the in the summary at the back, they say that there are some nuns who burn down the convent because they want to leave. Sick. Which is like Hell yeah. pretty badass, if I'm honest. <laughs> Punk rock nuns. Smash that patriarchy. <laughs> great. What great hoorays. Thank you for listening. We love you. I'm sorry you got, like, <laughs> half a history portion today. <laughs> Next time we'll be better. I think it all fit together well. Happy holidays. We love you. We love each other. Uh, yeah. Goodbye. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angeliki and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya. 